Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. Well, if you remember last week, we finished up Acts chapter 7, and, and um, this guy named Stephen came across our radar, okay? He's been, he was lifted up as a deacon in the church in Jerusalem, and God's, God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, who filled his life, he began to challenge. Not, not, he didn't go out of his way to pick a political fight, but he was being faithful in a moment. And there's this tension, what happens? We're going to talk about persecution a little bit tonight. But here's what happens. is that if we're faithfully following Jesus, we are inevitably going to um, come up against opposition. And the challenge is that in our flesh, it's easy to do two things. One response to persecution and one, one response to uh, pressure is to um, bow our backs and lean into it and be hostile. We pull into it, we, we, we dig into our flesh and we become um, so insecure that we've got to make a point. And so we throw away our heavenly influence for cheap political or um, personal points. The other sinful response is that we take persecution and we hide. Again, we turn towards our own insecurity and we bury ourselves and we say we're just going to shut everything out and we're just going to hide in our hole. But one of the things that God's Word teaches us is that there's confidence that comes from holiness. Confidence comes from walking with God and being and abiding in, in, in Christ. So when you think about P, uh, uh, Stephen's life, he was a God-abider. He was one who stayed connected to the Spirit. And as a result, what happened was that he was just doing his thing. And naturally, the enemy came and, they, and, and started to pressure him and started to oppress him. But there is this natural tension when pressure comes for us to either bow up or shrink back. But what Peter did, or sorry, sorry, what Stephen did, was that he was so in tune to what God was doing in his life that when he was presented in that situation, just like Jesus told his apostles, the Lord filled his mouth with the right words. That's a message for us. To trust that God is on His throne no matter what we're going through. So, if you remember the story from last week, Stephen was, was drugged in front of the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. They challenged him and told him to stop preaching the name of Jesus, and he, he gave it to him. He gave them the gospel. And as a result, they were so enraged, they drug him out of the city and they, and they put him to death. Well, one of the guys that we saw at the end of the, the seventh chapter of the book of Acts was a guy named Saul. Some of us know him by his Greek name, Paul. Saul was a um, was a he was studying to be the guy. He was gonna he was in the pipeline to be the teacher of teachers in Jerusalem. He was being discipled by the most prominent rabbis. He had the most prominent education. He came from a he was a Roman citizen, so he had political favor as well as as um, religious credentials. But it says that Paul stood there and he held the coats of the people that stoned Stephen. So what we're going to see is we're going to see the aftermath of what happened next. So let's check this out. Do the first three verses, and then we'll, then we'll continue on. Starting in verse 1 of, of Acts chapter 8, he says this. It says, Now Saul was in, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, 
entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. The first thing we're going to see is a community on mission. We're going to talk about um, this theme of attaching ourselves to something that we don't really believe in. But first, we've got to lay some groundwork. So after the murder of Stephen, the church began to spread. We see Saul emerge as the figurehead of persecution for the church. And what's translated as hearty agreement in my Bible can also be translated as to be pleased together with or to approve together. In other words, what that means is that Saul enjoyed it. He relished killing Stephen. Now, if you go on and you read Paul's letters and he describes the way that he was before he found Jesus, he describes himself as the foremost sinner, as a violent aggressor, as a blasphemer and a persecutor. By his own words, he acknowledges that he was completely lost and blind to the truth. Now, some people, they say, well, you know, Saul, he was just, he was just passionate about his faith and he was just being zealous to try to protect his religious credentials. But that's not what the text says. The text says that, Paul, that Saul was enraptured in his wickedness. He was blinded by his sin and he enjoyed watching people suffer. How could someone who um, we know is one of the, the foremost saints of the gospel be such a wicked person? He's turning on his own community. He's dragging men and women out of their homes. He's persecuting children. And yet, the church spreads. See, there's an old phrase by a preacher, an old preacher, his name is Chuck Swindoll, and he said one time in a book that I read, he said, God gets blamed for a lot of stuff he's got nothing to do with. For Saul, he was thinking that he was doing the right thing. He was thinking that he was uh, protecting the gospel. But remember, he's a, he's, he, is a, he, he doesn't know Jesus at this point in his life. He is fully enveloped in his sin. So what he's doing is he is getting masochistic pleasure from persecuting people. He's no different than anybody else in the Sanhedrin who was enraged and dragged Stephen off to, stab, to, to stone him. He cloaked his sinfulness in God language in order to mask his wickedness. He was happy to see those stones crush Stephen. He enjoyed it. Not because he was protecting the spiritual condition of his people, but because he was an instrument in the hand of Satan. And that's how he describes himself in Ephesians chapter 2. That he was lost in his transgressions and his sins. He was an instrument of the enemy. He didn't understand it at the time, but his false religion had blinded him from the truth. And it would take an act of God that we're going to find in Acts chapter 10 to shake him out of his sinful hatred of God's people. The reason why this is significant is because it, it, it lays the groundwork for us about who Saul is going to be. The reason why Saul is so passionate about grace, the reason why his teachings in the New Testament are so passionate about mercy and forgiveness, is because Saul understood that he brought nothing to the table, that he was the most wicked man in his eyes. God had shown him the true darkness of his heart. 
but even in the context of who Saul was. Look at what it says. It says that a great persecution broke out, and it says that the church was scattered throughout the regions. Now, this doesn't mean that they were scattered because they were afraid. This actually, the, the, the actual term here in the original language in Greek implies that they were scattered like seed on an open field. They took the death of Stephen and people getting dragged out of their homes as an exciting call to action. The language here doesn't imply that they were afraid. It doesn't imply that they were running for their lives. They were like a, uh, at a track meet when all the athletes line up on the line and they wait for the starter to fire the gun. As soon as the persecution happened, they said, it's time, let's go. And they moved. Man, what a contrast. What a contrast for us. That we pray for, for a reprieve from our anxiety. We ask that God would protect us, that He would give us hedges of protection and traveling mercies. Oh God, please, please don't let this hardship come to me. Please, Lord, don't, don't let me suffer. Let me just have a little bit more comfort. Let me have a little bit more peace. Let me have a little bit more reprieve. But instead, they jumped at it. I bet it's because they, they, they heard the, the words of Jesus ringing in their ears from Matthew chapter 5 where He said that there will be persecution. They will persecute you just like they persecuted me. Just like they persecuted the, pro- the prophets before me. This is a call to action. But you know, this is also really, really hurtful because this is coming from their community. This isn't coming from some stranger. This isn't the Romans doing this. This is Jewish people praying on Jewish people. We've got to remember that the same spirit that filled Stephen's lungs and, and put words on his lips to defy the Sanhedrin was the thing that sparked this. It wasn't human anger. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, some uh, political scheme. Stephen was given the words to say when he was dragged in front of the authorities. You know, in the, first, in the first century, early on, the Romans didn't even know that Christians were separate from Jews. They thought they were just a subsect of Jews. So the Romans haven't even entered the, the, the picture here yet. They're not going to get involved until many, many years later. You know, one of the things that, that, that they don't tell you is that when you start to chase Jesus, that the first line of oppression that you face, the first relationship that you find that suffers are the people that are closest to you. The people who are living and chasing the world. This can be family. If you're the first person who's saved in your family and, you're, and you're, your family members don't know Jesus, there's going to be a natural division between you and them as soon as you trust in Christ. It's going to be hard. Jesus said, when I, I've come to divide fathers from their sons and mothers from their daughters. The next thing is that the, the relationships that you have, the friendships that you have, that you enjoy, the people that you hang out with, all of a sudden you find out when you trust in Jesus that you don't have an identity with them anymore. The things that you did for fun don't appeal to you as much anymore. You don't necessarily want to go out to the bar. You don't necessarily want to go um, hook up with somebody. You don't necessarily want to go talk about your latest one-night stand. You find yourself doing things like reading your Bible and talking about the grace of God. That leads to conflict. 
Imagine these people, these Jews who were in the Jewish community already oppressed by the Romans, and yet they can't go to their only fa- own family members' homes and talk about what God is doing in their lives because they're afraid that they could report their own family. That the Jewish religious leaders that they used to trust and come for counsel in the, in the temple, now they can't go to them because now their freedom is in jeopardy. But this doesn't lead to fear. This leads to a mission mind. This leads to, to a, a, uh, a focus on spreading the gospel because, the, because freedom had come to Jerusalem. In, in verse 2, it says that some devout men, they buried Stephen. It says that they went out of their way to bury him. Now, Stephen is a criminal in the eyes of the law. He's a criminal in the eyes of the community. And yet, there are, there are godly men who go out of their way to bury this man who has now been killed as a criminal. He's supposed to be a social outcast. And these guys make it a point to bury their brother because they know that he's walked with Jesus. There's a lesson there for us. We don't have time to dig into that tonight, but there's a lesson there for us to stand by the people who are suffering under persecution, that we should support them regardless of how it makes us feel socially, what it does to our social standing, what it does to our pocketbook. Living righteously doesn't just affect us individually, but corporately also. It it affects everyone around us. It says that Paul began ravaging um, the the church. This is from a phrase that means to treat shamefully or with injury, to ravage, to devastate, or to ruin. In other words, Saul began to hunt people and hunt them in the worst way possible. There will be persecution against us from the people that know where all of our weaknesses are. How we see them will determine how we respond to them. We've got to remember that missions is a lifestyle, not a trip to another place. Missions is a lifestyle, not a trip to another place. How we see people in the moment of our persecution, how we see people in the moment of our offense, will determine how that person sees God because we have, we have claimed His name on us. We've claimed His name. We are Christians. The word Christian first came in the first century because it means little Christ. That means that when someone oppresses us, not only the, the primary person who is, who is hating us and hurting us, but also those who watch us, that is a way that people learn to see God. Remember, theology is very basic. Theology is how you see God, and how you see God is how you see the world. And how you live your life is going to determine how other people see God by how He plays out in your life. Well, not only is the church on mission, but individuals go on mission too. What what we're about to read in these next verses, this is the account of the very first international mission trip. I love it. Starting in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Now Philip, notice it's spelled with one L the right way. Um, now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which, were, which, which he was doing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits... They were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Because of what Saul was doing, that's why the word therefore is there. Because of what Saul was doing, because of the persecution, because they were scattered abroad, 
Those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. Does it sound like they feel defeated? Does it sound like they look they, they look sad? Proclaiming the good news of the word. Man, they weren't deterred. They were emboldened to preach the gospel. They had been praying for this. They had been praying, God, in spite of this persecution, give us boldness. And what does he do? He answers their prayer. Persecution comes and they fire like a rocket. They had seen the confrontation that the apostles had with the religious leaders. Those leaders of the church in the early days gave courage to this generation. One of the things that weighs heavy on my neck is that I understand that how I chase Jesus is going to, is going to give people permission to how they live their life. You need to consider that the same way. How you live is going, to, is going to going to coach someone, is going to teach someone how to chase Jesus. And there will be a time when someone will need to borrow your courage. And when you stand with the truth, if you stand on the rock of a confession of Jesus Christ, what happens is that your courage is contagious. These people were excited to share in the privilege of suffering for their faith. Not because they were looking for something to, to talk about how, how their lives were hard or how they had suffered so much because they wanted to share in what God had done. There's no prayer for deliverance here, but a central focus on preaching the word. They were centrally focused on the Great Commission when Jesus said, Go. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. Their audience is something we need to talk about. Because he goes to Samaria. Philip goes to a place that is considered unclean. There's a couple of reasons this is probably why this probably happened. Uh, the, the apostles and Jesus had done ministry in Samaria before. In John chapter 4, they go and Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. This is the woman who'd been married five times, right? And they go into the city and do ministry there. It says many believed in Jesus. So there's already a base of operations in Samaria. The second thing is that um, it was probably isolated from the, from the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. They're not going to go to Samaria because Samaritans were considered unclean. But Philip would know that there would be a place to do ministry there. There was fertile ground. He didn't just put his finger on a map and say, I'm going to go here. He said, I'm going to go with his base of operations. The third reason is there's a likelihood that the Samaritans would have known a little bit about what God was going to do in the Messiah. Now, if you remember your history, the Samaritans used to be Jews. These were people who were ethnically Jewish for a certain time, and they were conquered by foreign nations because they had turned their back on God, and they lost their identity. And so the Jews saw them as half-breeds, as compromised, as non-pure. But they still remembered their roots. In fact, the whole conversation in John chapter 4 between Jesus and the, and the woman at the well, she knows exactly what God's Word says. But what's ironic is that revival comes to Samaria first. God's Word has broken out in Jerusalem, and now we have all of these supposed dirty people who aren't qualified to be godly. And this is where God does His first major work. I find that fascinating. Revival comes. Boldness for the gospel comes when we're faithful at home. Persecution brings a heart for the nations. Philip 
Philip is known throughout the Bible as a man who brings people to Jesus. I love that about him. I love that I have his name. That he's a man that that's his number one reputation is he was a man that brings people to Jesus. So what does he do? He goes to Samaria. He begins to tell people about Jesus. He had what I like to call a ready yes. Doesn't doesn't matter who came to him, whether it was a boy with five loaves and two fish, whether it was dirty Samaritans or whoever, it didn't matter. Philip was going to bring him to Jesus. Didn't matter where somebody was from or, or where they had been or what they had done. He had a ready yes to say, oh yeah, I know Jesus. And notice the response, that there is great joy in that city. Because of his ready yes, because of his obedience, because of his, his uh, lack of, of personal protectiveness, he brought people to the throne of grace. Imagine if the testimony of your life was that you delivered joy to people. And I'm not saying that you bring happiness to people. You're not just the bubbly person that makes people smile and laugh. Imagine if the testimony of your life, after all of it is said and done, was that, you know what? I saw Jesus on that person. I saw Jesus on him. And he brought me joy. I saw Jesus on her. And she brought me joy. What a testimony. What a testimony. What a reason to chase Jesus. What a reason to lay aside everything else that weighs us down and to just pursue Christ so that people can experience the real fruit of the Spirit. Young people, I want to tell you to seek joy, not peace. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to seek peace. But it says chase Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. A content spirit comes from walking with God. A content spirit leads to a joyful spirit. A joyful spirit is also at peace. We try to chase freedom from our, our troubles. But what happens is that we're always chasing something that's just out of reach. The point of joy is that it comes from proximity to God. The joy of the Samaritans was not just because they were seeing relief from their physical affliction. It says that they were he was casting out demons and they were healing people. It was because they were seeing a movement of God in their midst. Hopefully you've been paying attention to what God is doing all around us here. That God is doing some profound things. That brings joy to people. Some of you have been wandering by yourself for years now. And you have found friendships here. You have found community here. I hear stories all the time. Hey, do you know so-and-so is hanging out with so-and-so? I did not know that, but that sounds great. You know that so-and-so, is there, they went to see a movie together with, so, with doing this thing, they're doing a game night, doing whatever. Like, I didn't know that, but that's great. You don't go to all these things? I honestly can't keep up. I love that. Joy comes from godly living. And of course, that's going to get someone's attention. Starting in verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astounded them with his magic arts. 
But when they believed Philip, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they being baptized, both men and women. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. He was constantly astounded. I'm sorry, I missed the line. Uh, He continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly astounded. You know, at this time, magic was connected to demonic worship and the occult. Simon wasn't just simply an illusionist. He wasn't um, some magician you'd see at Caesar's palace. He used his knowledge of the occult to manipulate people from all walks of life for his own gain. And he himself claimed to be someone great. But one of the things that's astounding is that Simon, he's like the big guy in town. He's famous. Everybody knows who he is. He's the wise man. He's the magi. That's what the the actual word is translated as magician is magi. This is the same term that's used to describe the men who came to see Jesus whenever he was born. A wise man. He was a man who was supposedly educated in all these things. But he was a man who took advantage of people. And next to his cheap magic tricks, compared to what Philip was doing, the people were turning away from him. So in my sanctified imagination, I see Simon. He's looking around. His crowds are beginning to shrink. His pocketbook is starting to be affected by what's happening with ministry around in Samaria. And he says, man, i got to get in on this. So he says, man, I, I, I believe, I believe. So he begins to follow Philip around. Amazed by his signs and great miracles is what it says. And by all accounts, he looks like an authentic believer. But there's just something off. Something off. Have you ever met somebody at church? You can't quite figure out what it is, but there's just something off. You know what? They 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 have all the they know the words. They know when to stand up and when to sit down. They know how to talk the talk, but there's just something that just doesn't something odd about this cat. I don't get it. That's how we feel about Simon. You know, it leads to a question. Are you a real follower of Jesus? Or are you a pretender? Are you somebody that comes to church for your social engagements to scratch that friend itch and then go home and do your thing? Now, you may you may not be like the, a bad person, right? I mean, you're not killing people. You're not raping people. You're not out there, you know, robbing banks. But, you know, I go home and you know, hang out watch some stuff on my phone that I know is not good for me, or, you know, I might stalk some people on social media. Nothing wrong with that, you know. Um, You know, I may harbor some resentment against some people. Nothing wrong with that. Something's not right. Something seems to be just out of grasp every single time you think about it. When the preacher asks you a question like that, am I truly a believer of, of God? Am I truly a child of God or am I, am I a pretender? That question just kind of goes, eh, I, don't, I don't like that question. Because I feel fake. One of the things that Taylor says all the time is, what about your life right now proves that you're a child of God? 
And I love that because it's so true. You know, I don't ever have to doubt who my dad is. You guys have ever seen my dad? He looks just like me. Carbon copy, this guy. Yep, you don't have to doubt it. I know exactly who my dad is. I've had several people like, hey, man, I saw a guy today, Sunday morning at church, and he totally could be your dad. Like, probably my dad. Unless it's Greg Barnhart. He's not my dad. I don't have to doubt who my dad is because I look just like him. I'm reminded when I look at myself in the mirror. Did you know that God's Word says that His Word is a mirror for us? That when we look at the perfect law of liberty, that it will show us who we are. So when we open God's Word and we read about who God's children are, who God is, we should be able to walk in confidence. Are you a real follower of Jesus? When you look at yourself, when you look at yourself through the lens of God's Word, do you see yourself next to God? I said this before, you know, a lot of people think about this book as a file folder full of things that that you can and cannot do, a list of rules of do's and don'ts. But that's really not what this is. This is really... God's character traits listed out. And as I read His Word and as I understand His Word, what happens is that I begin to understand who He is. And you know what? What's happened in my life over the last 37 years is that there are passages of Scripture. The reason why they're so quick on my tongue is because I've lived them. So when I tell you that you don't pay your bills in Matthew chapter 6, guess where I picked that up? Not by memory, by experience. When I say that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, James chapter 4, not because I memorized it, but because I've been there. We should see ourselves in God's Word. The other question this begs to, to, for us to ask is, does the world hate your godliness? Is there opposition in your life? Or are you just kind of just cruising? You good? Making that money, going to the job, doing the thing, dating the girl, dating the boy, whatever. You cruising? Because God's Word says that there will be trouble. If there's not trouble, why? And if there is trouble, does it fuel you to have compassion to spread the gospel? Do you have the same mindset as Philip and the rest of the rest of the church? When persecution comes because of your godly living, do you automatically see people with compassion with the eyes of Jesus? Or do you look for ways that you can hit them back? The most powerful thing is when the Holy Spirit's on mission. Look at that. Look at how God reveals this, starting in verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had, had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you supposed you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. 
Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. But Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourself. So that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. The Holy Spirit begins to fall on these believers. I need to explain this because it sounds like the Holy Spirit only comes after a certain thing. Scripture teaches us that, all of Scripture teaches us that when we are saved, the Holy Spirit enters our life. That we become in fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. Some read this inaccurately that there is there are two events in a Christian's life, one where they are saved and one where the Holy Spirit fills them. And if the Holy Spirit hasn't filled them, that they're not a true believer. It's not what's, that's not what's being said here. Remember, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So back up. If you remember, when Jesus was doing ministry with Peter and with the other apostles, Jesus had an exchange with Peter in Matthew uh, chapter 16. And he said, um, he said, Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, God, so he says, you have not discerned this from your own will, but it's been shown to you by the Father, and on this rock I will build my church. Saying, on this confession, I will build my church, that Jesus is Lord. And then he says to his disciples, I will give you all of the keys of heaven and of earth, and everything that you bind on earth will be bound, and everything that you free on earth will be, will be freed. This event, what's happening here, is a message to Peter. The Spirit coming from the laying on of hands says more about what God is teaching the leadership of the apostles than what's happening in Samaria. Because remember what's happening. Peter hasn't had his vision yet that, that God is accepting all people from all nations. So Peter is beginning to learn that God is doing something in the lives of people that aren't Jews. So what's happening with Peter is that he comes and, and he is essentially the gatekeeper. Jesus told him, you are going to be the shepherd. You are going to be the one who, who says yes or says no. I'm going to give you the supernatural ability to, to, to feed my sheep, to be the shepherd of my sheep. And so God's moving in Samaria. We need Peter and John to come check this out. So they come. And they realize, yes, these people are true believers. Peter was acting as a type of authenticator for the converted. Think about what happened in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. God had given him a divine perspective on what was true and what was not true. He could see through a person, like, walk, like looking through a window. This is why the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen yet on any of them, because they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What's, what he's saying here is that um, Peter and John needed to see these people be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout Scripture, this phrase, being filled with the Holy Spirit, Bring some significance. Usually what happened was that if, if there was a, an event happening, a supernatural pouring out of the Holy Spirit would come on a person and they would do something that would point people to God. Think about Elijah calling down fire from on Mount Carmel. Think about Samson. I know you guys have been studying Samson in Sunday school. Think about Samson killing all those Philistines or tearing open a lion, right? The Spirit of God comes upon a person and they do something miraculous that points people to God. That's what's happening here. These people had been saved. They were in relationship with God. They had the Holy Spirit, but they had not had that moment 
Remember, God is using miracles and signs to be able to, to corroborate what he's doing with people. So Simon sees this. He sees this. Look at verses 17. Uh, 17. Then they began to lay their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. What does he say? Give this authority to me, so that everyone that I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saw this as an opportunity. He goes, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. These must be the real big bosses. They come into town. They're saying yes and no about things. This Peter and John, this Peter and John guys, they must be the real leaders. I've been hanging out with Philip, watching him, seeing how he does his tricks. But these guys, like they're given the gift. I want that. Notice he's not concerned about kingdom things, but owning the power of the apostles. His conversion seems to be more about preserving his celebrity and wealth than his salvation. He's been watching Philip doing ministry, performing miracles. But you know, the thing is, pretenders can only last for so long before God roots them out. One of the things that I have found that's an epidemic, actually, in our generation are people that bounce church to church. They always find some reason to leave. Preaching isn't good. Not being fed. That's one of my favorites. Not being fed, even though you know I'm talking about the Word of God. Um, music isn't my favorite. Fill in the blank. Find a reason to bounce from church to church. First John tells us that if we love God, we're going to love His people. That means that we're going to be drawn to His people. We can't help it. Because we love them, we want to be with them. That's not what Simon's worried about here. He doesn't care about any of that. He, he, he wants the power. We know this because look at, look at Peter's response. Look at verse 20. But when Peter said to him, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. If I could translate that literally from the Greek, it means to hell with your money. I don't want it. Why would I? I'm going to give you this priceless gift because you offer me money? Are you serious? Did you not just see that person's leg grow back? Did you not just see that crazy person who was full of, full of all kinds of demons become normal again? You're going to give me some cash for this? Are you serious? No, absolutely not. To hell with your money. Peter prophetically calls out Simon with a crystal clear rebuke. So he says this, look at verse 21. He says, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Another way to describe uh, this is that Simon's heart was crooked and out of place. He says, man, dude, what are you doing? But you know, here's the thing is that when somebody is, is convicted and whenever they're rebuked by godly counsel, which is what we should do, if they respond in conviction to want to be right with God, we know that they're an authentic believer. But if their first response is to try to get somebody else to fix it for them, we know that they don't have a relationship with God because otherwise they would run straight to God when they're in trouble. That's the first sign of a child of God. When you got, when you got hurt when you were a kid, did somebody have to convince you to go talk to your mommy? Absolutely not. When you didn't feel safe, 
After you wrecked your bike, did somebody have to say, oh man, you really should go talk to your dad and your dad's standing right there? No, you ran into his arms because there was a relationship. So we can tell something about Simon by how he responds. Check this out. He tells him to repent. He says, if this is possible, meaning depending on your response, we'll, we'll know how to fix this. Look at verse uh, 24. But Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon wanted Peter to fix his sin, not God. How often, man, how often does the sinner ask the preacher to believe for him? But the child calls for his grandmother to pray for him because he doesn't have the faith. Simon's response is, what am I going to do? Fix this for me. There's a lesson here. There's a lesson here for us about what we do when we're caught in sin. Simon's offense wasn't that he made a social mistake, but that he wanted to possess the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit for his own gain. We don't know what happens to Simon. Church history tells us that he ends up uh, falling off the deep end. He became a dangerous false teacher among the early Christians. It's possible that he repented, but we don't have any record of that. But you know, his response tells us a lot about who he was. Last question for you tonight. What cheap trinket are you trying to give God to make him do what you want? What cheap trinket are you trying to give God to make Him do what you want? God, if you'll just get me out of this jam, I'll, believe, I'll, I'll, I'll start going back to church. God, if you'll just fix this relationship. God, if you'll just give me the right job, I'll follow you. God, if you'll just take care of this, if you'll just make me secure. God, if you'll just give me an apartment. God, if you'll give me a job. God, if you'll give me a degree. God, if you give me a significant other, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a fiance, a husband, a wife, I'll follow you then. Damn your money. Your trinkets. He wants you. That's been the whole theme of all of this these last several weeks, is that God wants you. God doesn't make deals. His business is people. People are God's business. And this is something that we can't fake. This is something that we can't say, oh, you know, I'm just going to hang out with the Christian people and kind of do the Christian thing. You've got to be all in. If you look around at church and everybody's having a great time and everybody's fellowshipping and you've got, there's sincere relationships happening, people are excited about opening God's Word, and you catch yourself rolling your eyes about the most precious thing that God's given us, His Word and His community, you have a problem. You have a very real problem. Something that I can't fix for you. This is not an intellectual problem. This is a faith problem. This is a belief problem. God's children, even when they're rebellious, want to be with Him. Conviction is present even when we are living in sin. It's how we know that God loves us. But if we can take the things of God and we can make them common, make them cheap, Offer God cheap little substitutes for obedience. 
We have got a really, really skewed view of the world. So what cheap trinkets are you offering God to say, God, if you'll take this, I'll do whatever you want. He wants your life. He wants your soul. He wants your purpose. Greater love has no one than this, than that he would give his life for his friends. Life is psyche, your heart purpose, who you are. I know this is a hard question, but I have played this game all of my life. Give God my trinkets and I'll make him happy enough to give me what I want. But God's not going to give me something that's going to take my eyes off of him because he loves me too much. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.